Amen. Thank you, Philip. Well, good morning again. How you doing? I can see those bright smiles going beneath the surface, ready to emerge. Um, hey, we are starting a new series today, uh, talking about the book of Revelation. Um, our text comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You can go ahead and flip over there. Just want to give you a couple of, uh, a little journey through the, through the millennia here. And to the best reckoning of scholars, around 500 AD, a fellow by the name of Hippolytus uh, believed that Jesus was going to return, that the end of the world was going to happen in 500 AD. So that's the scholars' best reckoning. That was the first time in human, or, or since Christ's uh, resurrection and ascension, that somebody predicted, hey, this is when I think it's going to happen. Somebody said 500 AD. The next fellow down the pipe was Pope Sylvester II in one on January 1st, 1000 AD. He said, that's the date. Jesus is going to return in 1000 um, AD. And then it didn't happen. He said, oh, actually, let's take the 33 years of Jesus' life. Let's start at his ascension. Let's count a thousand years. So he said it's going to happen on January 1st of 1033 um, AD. And we're still here. Um, another guy by the name of John Wesley, some of y'all may know him moving forward here a little ways. 1836, John Wesley said he thought that the millennial reign, the millennial, this thousand year reign had begun in the year 1836. Um, Charles Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the guy who got that going, said in 1874 that Christ was going to return. In 1891, a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith, you've heard of him before in the Mormons, he said that that's when Christ was going to return. Again, the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they would not be, you know, undone here, they said, hey, look, we think it's going to happen now in 1914. That didn't work out. 1925, no, that didn't work out. Then they were looking for the 1970s, and of course, that didn't work out either. And then a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey actually brought a copy of his book. I don't know if you all have ever seen this or read this or heard of this. This is called The Late Great Planet Earth. This guy by the name of Hal Lindsey, back in the 70s, this thing was first issued out in the 70s, sold millions and millions and millions of copies. And he predicted that the uh, end of the, of the world was going to happen in the 1980s, late 1980s. He was looking for 40 years from the time that uh, Israel became a nation in 1948. Um, and he was counting 40 years, one generation, Jesus said. And so he was looking in the 1980s. Well, that didn't happen. And so he's looked into the 90s. And now he's still on TV today. You can find him on some of the preacher channels out there still making predictions about when he thinks the world's going to end. Jerry Falwell in 1999 said, we're in a 10-year window here when he thinks that the world is going to come to an end. And then finally, most recently, a guy by the name of John Hagee. And have you all heard of him? John Hagee, he's a pastor down in, I think, San Antonio area. And he told his people, stop putting money away in the stock market. Stop investing money. Stop saving money. Because Jesus is coming soon. There's this blood moon that's about ready to happen on uh, September the 28th of 2015. And he was sure of it, but he wouldn't say exactly. I'm not 100% sure it's going to happen. But I know it's either going to happen then or it's going to happen within a very short window of time after that. Well, again, we're still here. So this has been going on. If you look at I, I got this from, uh, from Wikipedia, right? That great research source um, of information. So you can look at it. It's amazing. If you look over the last couple of hundred or couple of centuries, last couple of hundred years, the, the predictions for the end of the world, I mean, it's been a really busy couple of centuries. Um, people have really been thinking that Jesus is going to return. It's going to be the end of the world or the beginning of some millennial reign and all this kind of stuff. And so that's kind of where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks is, well, what does, is Hal Lindsey, you know, what do we do with this information? What do we do with what Jerry Falwell said? What do we do with what John Hagee said? What do we do with what all these people have said? And how does it tie into the book of Revelation? So that's where we're going with this series. 
Again, our text for today is just the introductory lines, the opening lines of the letter. So I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet as is our custom here. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. These are just the opening words of John's revelation. Here we go, chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You may be seated. Okay, you've probably, well, not probably, some of you have sat through a Bible study that I've taught before on the book of Revelation, so some of this is not going to be um, new news to you. For others of you, as you hear me talk about this, you're going to sit there and scratch your head going, Gordon, I didn't learn that in my Sunday school. Pause for a drink of water. Um, and so you may be thinking to yourself, I don't, I'm not sure where you're going with this, Gordon. I'm not sure if you're even on the, on the, same, on the same page as Orthodox Christianity. So um, just bear with me. You know that I'm a person who absolutely believes in the, in, the, in, the, in the authority of Scripture, who believes in the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. So and you know I hold it very high, and I hold this as the ultimate source of truth. It doesn't matter what your experience is. It doesn't matter what you were taught in Sunday school. It doesn't matter what, uh, what you learned from your reason from your science class. We take God's Word, and we play, hold it as the primary truth source amongst any other sources that are trying to tell us the way we ought to live our lives, who God is, or uh, the deal about eternity. So you just hang with me, all right? Let's walk through these passages of Scripture, these couple of verses here. We're going to start at verse 1. It begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's stop right there for a second and ask the question, what is a revelation? What are we talking about when the Bible says this is some revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, revelation is special knowledge that God gives to a person. This is not information that you got from reading a book. This is not information that you got from a science lab. This is not information that you got by going out walking through nature. This is information that you acquired because God gave it to you. This is information that other people didn't have. This is information that you got. It's unique. God gave it to you. He's the source of that information. So this is a revelation right here at opening lines um, of Jesus Christ. And who is the recipient of this information? Well, there were two people who are the recipients of this revelation. The first it mentions right there is Jesus Christ. It says that whom God gave, um, or which God gave him, gave Jesus. So Jesus received this information from God the Father, and then the verse goes on to tell us that Jesus passes this information along via an angel, we'll come to the angel here in a second, via an angel to the apostle John. It says that Jesus made this information known by sending an angel to his servant John. Now, that John that's referred to there in the opening lines here of the letter is the Apostle John. This is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. This is John who wrote the Gospel of John. This is the John who is responsible for the first, second, and third letters of John that are in our New Testament. This is the same John who received and then recorded, wrote down the Revelation. So this special knowledge was transmitted to John, it says, through an angel. Now this angel is going to pop up as we travel through the book of Revelation. It's going to pop, the angel is going to pop up again and again and again. And the purpose of the angel is to help John understand what John's seeing. So John sees this vision and he's going, I don't know what this thing is with seven heads. And the angel will say, well, let me explain to you what it is that you just saw. And so the angel serves as a guide to explain to John the visions that he's seeing. The angel serves as a guide to say, okay, John, let's move on to the next thing. We're done here. So that's what the angel is there for. One other detail that I want to point out here from verse one, and it's a biggie. It's a whopper. It's huge, okay? And here's what it says. Verse one, it says, 
that this revelation concerns, and I quote, the things which must soon take place. Let me read that again, that this revelation concerns the things which must soon take place. You say, well, why is that such a big deal? Why, what's the big whopper in that? Well, because John thinks that the future predictions that he shares here in the book of Revelation are things that are going to happen when? Soon. He's the inspired author. I'm not the inspired author. And so John says, hey, look, I have an understanding that these things are going to happen soon. So the author of the book believes that the fulfillment of the things that you read about in Revelation, see, we're start, sounds like I'm starting to drift now out of your Sunday school class that you grew up in, right? That, that these things, these fulfillment of things are going to happen within close proximity to John's writing, John's recording of these events. You say, Gordon, hold on just a second. I thought the book of Revelation was a book about the distant future. I thought it was a book about my future. And if it's supposedly happened a long time ago, soon to John, right, 2,000 years ago, then that means the book of Revelation is fulfilled. It means it's not a book about something that happens way off into the distant future, into my future, but rather it's something that happens in John's future. And that, that's, that's one way of considering this. That's one way of thinking about it. And it all depends on what your definition of the word soon is, right? Sounds like I'm parsing words here, but I'm not. It depends on what your definition of the word soon is. So let's just kind of look into the scriptures, look into the New Testament and see how is this word soon used in other places in the New Testament, because it is hugely important. It's a whopper when it comes to understanding what's going on in this letter. The Greek term that's translated there as the word soon is the Greek word takos. That's the transliterated version. I, didn't, I couldn't find in my word document how you could translate something into Greek letters. But anyway, y'all didn't care about that. But so it's the word takos, which means quickly or speedily or before long. That's how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. This Greek word takos appears several other places in the scriptures. For example, Acts chapter 12 and verse 7, Peter's in jail. An angel shows up to get him out of jail. And so then the angel says, it says verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter in jail and lit up, shone all around the cell. So lit this whole cell up. And Peter, he's still over there sawing logs. You think with this big bright light in his thing that he would like come, you know, wake up. But he didn't wake up. And so it says that the angel struck him, Peter on the side, and woke him up saying, Go, get up, tack off. Get up quickly, speedily, do it now. This is your escape. And so it says that the chains then fell off his hands. Luke chapter 18 and verse 8, Jesus is telling a parable about a widow who has been pestering a local judge for some justice. We don't know what the issue is. Jesus doesn't tell us what the issue is, why, what sort of justice she was seeking. But she, after this judge, she's showing up at his house. She's knocking on the door. He's coming out the door in the morning to go get to his car, and she's right there following him on the way to his car. And he's just getting tired of this widow that keeps showing up wanting this justice. And he finally says, hey, I'm not fearful of men. I'm not even fearful of God, but I'm tired of this lady waking me up and being in my head all the time, right? He says, so I'm going to give her what it is that she's asking for. And then Jesus concludes the parable with these words. He says, Luke chapter 18 and verse 8, God will give the persistent person justice. You keep knocking on God's door and God's going to give you your justice. And when he's done giving it to them, or it says, or, and when he's going to, when is he going to give it to them? He's going to give it to them. The Greek word there is takos, speedily. This idea that it's going to happen really soon. One more example, Acts chapter 25 and verse 4. It says Festus, Festus was the Roman governor of Judea at this particular point in time. And it says that Festus 
replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the Judean province at that time. It's where the governor would have lived. And that he himself, Festus, intended to go there to see Paul, takos, that is to see him shortly as it's translated. This Greek term takos, friends, occurs seven times in the New Testament, and every time it means the same thing. It means speedily. It means before long. It means shortly. It means within close proximity to right now. And in the book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it means soon. Okay, let's continue. End of verse 1. It says, This revelation was made known to Jesus' servant John, who, verse 2, bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3. Everybody doing okay? All right. You're, just, you're, you're, you're taking it in. You're not, you're, all right. Hang with me. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That is the special knowledge from God. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. Why? For the time is near. So here we are again in the opening lines of the letter and Paul saying, or John saying, hey, look, the time for this stuff, the time for what I'm about ready to reveal to you is coming soon. It is near. The Greek word that's used there that's translated near is the Greek word and geese. It appears 25 times in the New Testament and it is used most always as a time reference. Not always, but almost always as a time reference reference, referring to something of close proximity again to now. For example, John chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, the Passover of the Jews was in geese. That is, it was at hand. The Passover was going to happen really soon, and Jesus went on up to Jerusalem. Matthew 24 and verse 32, Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lessons. You got a fig tree out there growing. It was a really pretty day yesterday. Sap's starting to run into those branches and you're starting to see it bud he says as soon as the branches become tender and puts out its leaves guess what you know that summer is in geese that is you know that summer is near 25 times this word is used in the new testament over and over and it always means the same thing it is a time reference it means that whatever's about to take place the time for that thing to take place is near so let's sum up what we've learned so far. God the Father gives Jesus some special knowledge. Jesus transmits that special knowledge, that revelation, through an angel to John the Apostle. And John says that the fulfillment of this revelation is supposed to take place when? Soon. Verse 3, for the time is near. Remember, these are the opening lines of the book. Should mean something to us. You say, well, Gordon, I mean... I mean, before he even gets into any of the details, Paul or John says, hey, look, what I'm about ready to tell you, you can expect this to happen soon. And everywhere else in the Bible, the word means soon, the word soon means soon, and near means near. So we would expect, at least from what John has written, for the prophecy of the revelation to have already been fulfilled. Because if John's saying it's going to happen soon, if the time for it is near, then it's, it would have happened way back when, not long after John had written these things. Um, if we take the Bible at its word. Now you say, Gordon, those are just the opening lines of the book. I mean, I know those are the opening lines of the book, but I mean, is there other places in the book of Revelation where he mentions this, or is he just mentioned this here and then he moves on? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Y'all are really sharp today. Um, and because it is mentioned elsewhere in the books, so let's travel through and see this in the book of Revelation uh, quite a few times. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 16, Jesus is, tells one of the seven churches to whom this letter is written. He says, verse 16, Repent, he says to them, if not, I will come to you 
soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 3 and verse 11. I, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Revelation 11 and verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So here the angel just told John that some of the stuff the angel has already talked about has already happened, is past tense to the author, is past tense to John, and that the rest of it he can expect to happen, right, really soon. Let's turn to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 7. Here's that angel talking to John again, verse 6 says, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Everything that I've been telling you, you can, you can take it to the bank. It's good. It's trustworthy. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants, that is John and the other recipients of this letter, what must soon take place. This is the end of the letter. This is the end of the book. After we've already given you all the details, we've fed all that stuff to you. And he's saying, John, I, the things which I've already I just told you about, you can expect them to happen soon. Again, in verse 7, Jesus this time inserts himself. If you have your Bible that has a red letter edition in it where it says all the red, red, in red letters all the words of Jesus. So Jesus pipes up, shows up, pipes up here at the end of the book of Revelation. And he says in verse 7, And behold, I am coming when? Mm-hmm. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, in verse 10, then the angel of the Lord told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is near. Don't put a seal on it. Leave it open because it's all about ready to unfold. Don't, don't put a seal on it, stick it on a shelf someplace. Don't put a seal on it, stick it on a box, put it up in the attic and forget about it. Let it collect dust. Leave this thing open because it's about ready to happen. And then Jesus speaks up again, verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And then again in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Hmm. Where was that in Bible school, right? So in the closing lines of the book and in the opening lines of the book and throughout the book, the perspective of Jesus, the perspective of the author John, the perspective of the angel who gives these things to John, all believe that the revelation, the events that he's about that are unfolding in this book of Revelation are all supposed to happen within close proximity to now, which is in John's day, that we would expect that those things would have already happened in the first century, that they're going to happen tacos soon, that the time for them is and geese that is near. Not to your point of reference or my point of reference, but soon and near to John's day. Now, that's probably really different. <laughs> Some of you have, have heard me teach on Revelation, so this is like easy breezy stuff, right? But for others of us, this is the first time we're hearing this, and we're thinking to ourselves, that is, that is not what John Hagee said last week when I was listening to him, right? He's a good preacher, but I mean, you know, has a different view of this thing. Let me just say here at the front end too, and I, I've shared this before in some of my classes, how we view the book of Revelation is not a salvation issue. Nobody lost heaven because they have a different view of the book of Revelation. You can be pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, something like that. You can be any of that stuff, and we'll all still make it up to heaven. And what's going to happen one of these days is John Hagee's going to be his way up to heaven. I'm going to be my way up to heaven, and John Hagee's going to tell me, he's going to say, I told you so. Or I'm going to say, John, I told you so, right? That's what's going to happen. So again, that may be really different than what we've heard. Maybe you grew up reading the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, and these books predicted a period of persecutions of Christians leading up to the end of the world. 
There would be this rapture where the Christians vanish off the planet before the persecution begins. Other people say it's going to happen after the persecution begins. But John clearly thought, the author of the book clearly thought, that what he was about ready to share was going to happen soon. And the time for it was really near. Okay, what I'd like to do now... Um, is to identify what is this revelation all about. So we got the time frame, at least from John's reckoning. But let's talk a little bit about what's, what's the book of Revelation about? What's, what, what's the purpose of it? Um, let's just keep moving forward here, a couple verses, and, and that's all we'll do for today. But uh, Verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. I got a map for you here of the seven churches of Asia Minor. You can see these are the seven churches, at least the locations of them, that to whom this letter was written. And I just want you to know just a little bit of background here is that these seven churches are composed of Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians, and they're under heavy persecution. The Jewish people have just been laying it thick on all these folks coming after them. The Romans have been laying it thick under the persecution of Nero, the emperor Nero. He had really been painting it on heavy for these, for these Christians, these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in these churches here in these particular towns. This is Asia Minor. Um, and we'll talk more about the Roman uh, uh, conquest or second conquest of, of Judea, putting down the revolt that had happened there. Um, but just so you know, um, that's, that's to whom this letter is written. So he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, uh, grace and peace to you, because they need some encouragement. All right. Nero's soldiers won't leave him alone. Grace and peace to you from him, God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the seven spirits will appear a little bit later in the letter, and we'll see who all that stuff refers to. Verse 5, from, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, Jesus the resurrected, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our, from our sins by his blood, that's what Jesus accomplished for us, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then finally, verse 7, here we go. Pay real close attention here. Big verse. Behold, he, Jesus, is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, he says, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Now, this is a really key verse um, in understanding the purpose of the letter. Again, opening lines of the letter. I cannot emphasize that enough. I mean, when you're writing your introduction to the body of your information, you know this is, this is where this, this letter's going. This is where this essay is going, right? I have students that write a five-paragraph essay. Paragraph number one needs to be an introductory paragraph where you tell me where you're going. And so that's what he's doing here, verse 7, in the opening lines. It says, Behold, Jesus is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Um, John gives us the first hint here of what of the target of God's judgment. That is the target of all of these woes that we're, getting, we're going to read about in the coming weeks. He says it concerns uh, the coming on the clouds of Jesus. Now, what does it mean here in this phrase for God to come on the clouds? Well, let me tell you, it's not a good thing. When God comes on the clouds, we're not thinking white, puffy, you know, cheery clouds, and here he comes, you know. That's, that's not the kind of clouds that we're talking about here. In fact, when the clouds, God comes on the clouds in the Old Testament, it always is a reminder, it's a symbol of God's judgment coming. 
It's a symbol of God's smackdown coming either to the nation of Israel or to the unruly neighbors of Israel. And here's a couple of examples that I've got for you uh, from Psalm chapter 97, verses 2 through 3. Uh, it says, this is the psalmist writing, David. He says, clouds and thick darkness are all around God. Righteous, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out before him and burns up his adversary. And here comes God in the cloud, and what you get out of the cloud, fire. What you get out of the cloud are burning up of God's adversaries. The prophet Isaiah writes about the coming judgment of God against Egypt. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Friends, again, this is just a sampling of, of, of occasions where God comes on the clouds, where he's depicted as coming on the clouds, and always when God comes on the clouds, right? right it's judgment coming, it's lightning bolts, it's fire, it's doom is on its way. And so <clears throat> John says that Jesus, verse 7, chapter, Revelation 1 and verse 7, that he's coming with the clouds. This is not something to be excited about. And who is God's focus? Or his judgment, who are the lightning bolts aimed at, he says, even those who pierced him. Now, who are those who pierced Jesus? You say, well, the Romans were the ones who pierced Jesus. And you'd be right that they were the ones who held the nail. They struck the nail. Uh, it was the Romans that did it. Um, however, let's flip over to Matthew 27, and we'll see who takes responsibility for the physical act. All right, Matthew chapter 27, we'll begin at verse 24. This is the account of Jesus standing before the people, and they're about ready to call him out to be crucified, and the crowds are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's just had his little inquiry with Jesus. He says, I find no fault in this guy, and he's getting nowhere with the crowd. And then finally, he says, uh, verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, getting nowhere, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Y'all go do the act. You go crucify him. I'm not crucifying this man. This other fellow here, Barabbas, he is a convicted criminal. He deserves the cross. Jesus doesn't deserve any of this. And so he washes his hands of the whole business. Listen to what the Jewish people say, verse 25. But all the people answered, his blood be on us, we'll own it, and on our children, that is, on this generation. <clears throat> Friends, the Jewish people took full responsibility for the act of crucifixion. Verse 26, then Pilate released them for Barabbas, uh, and, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The Jewish people, in God's estimation, are those who pierced their Messiah. Friends, God was ticked off. God was red-faced angry, and rightly so. He had just sent them the Savior, the Messiah, and they had rejected him, spit on him, paid money and bribes to see this whole thing through, made sure that he made it to the cross, and when it came to the moment of, hey, which, which way are we going to go here? They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And this generation, we'll take it. Let it be on us. Friends, this should not be surprising to us that God would judge his people. Read the Old Testament. 
I mean, there is occasion after occasion after occasion of God spitting nails at the Jewish people because they told him to go this way, and then they decided to go that way, and then he's upset, and he brings judgment against them from foreign nations. I mean, this, this thing just repeats itself over and over and over again all through the Bible. So this should not be a, a surprising to us that God has punished the Jewish people. Um, you can see, if we can show the, bat, the, the main slide that says the Revelation on it, there's a picture on there. It's also on the front of your bulletin. That's a painting. I think it was done around 1850 by a fellow, you don't quote me on this, by the name of David Roberts. You can Google that and tell me that I'm wrong. Um, but it, by a fellow by the name uh, David Roberts, it's oil on canvas, and it depicts, it's his rendering of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., um, there had been a revolt that started, I think it was in 66 AD, and the Jewish people basically kicked the Romans out. They finally got the Romans out, and then some years later, the Romans come back in 69 AD, led by General Vespasian. Vespasian ends up getting called back to Rome because there's been a death there in the emperor, and so Vespasian ends up taking over. He sends his son, little Titus, and you can see little Titus standing out there on the edge of that little, that little cliff, and he's directing the Roman soldiers. I don't know if you can see that well, throw your glasses on, but anyhow, he's, uh, you can Google that thing later. But um, he's standing out there on the precipice of this cliff, and that's Titus, um, General Vespasian's son, directing the Roman legions against the city of Jerusalem. You can see the city of Jerusalem all in flames. And this fellow, David Roberts, he did many of these types of paintings of, um, of, of, of biblical scenes, or as he imagined them. Um, again, what you see there is God's judgment within a generation. Jesus said, these things which I have spoken about will take place, or, or this generation will not, I forget the words. Anyway, it's, it's written, look it up, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, I think it's like verse 34 or 40. Am I right? Somewhere in there. He's like, our, our other Bible scholar here, he says, yeah. So anyhow, Jesus says, the things which I have spoken will take place within this generation. And so a generation's 40 years. So with Jesus uh, headed back on up to heaven in, uh, was it 33 AD or some say 29 AD. So you put 40 years to it. You got the Roman legions coming around in 69 AD. They laid siege to the city in 70 AD. And then you have the fall of Jerusalem. And this was, this was a smackdown. And we'll talk in more detail. I'll read to you some of the accounts from a guy by the name of uh, um, Josephus. Yeah, that's right. Uh, his, I was just reading about it the other day, reading some of his account. He was actually inside the city when this happened. He was a historian. He was Jewish. He was employed by the Romans. Um, and then he made his way out of the city was, uh, was, uh, and changed. And so he talks about some of what he saw, and it's pretty remarkable. Friends, this is not a book, The Revelation about God's judgment of you. This is a book about, it's not, God's, it's not a book about God's judgment of the nations of the world. It's not a book about God's judgment of, or, or some impending rapture of the church followed by a millennial reign of Christ. This is a book, a Revelation is a book about God's wrath being poured out against the nation of Israel for rejecting the Messiah that God the Father had sent them and crucifying him on a cross. Again, all part of God's plan. But they had done this, and they had owned the act, and they said, let his blood be on us and on our children, and bingo, it was. That's what this book is about. Very little of it we'll see in the coming weeks. Very little of it actually has any future predictions left. But it does have some, and on Easter Sunday, if you're here Easter Sunday, we'll get into what, what the future predictions of those are and the resurrection of the dead and all that sort of fun stuff. But we've got to work our way toward that. Um, but I'm, just, I'm sharing with you this morning a... a Something different than what John Hagee would say, something different than what Jerry Falwell would say, 
um, that the events of Revelation are past tense by the author's own reckoning that they're supposed to have happened soon, within the first century. Um, so that's the way I, I, I see this. And again, we'll, we'll dive in deep and get in the details and, and do a fair treatment of all this. Okay, so that's as far as we want to go with our text for today, which means it's time for me to wrap this thing up. I'm running out of time. Um, and that, it's also time for us to ask our most important question. I'll be quick here. What difference does all this make to my life? Say, hey, Gordon, thank you very much for the little history lesson that you gave us today. It's nice to know that somebody painted this stuff. But I mean, besides all that, if it's all in the past, what difference does anything have to make to me, right? Well, that's a really great question. <clears throat> Let me see if I can answer it on the super fast. I've got, uh, so two differences that it makes for your life and mine. First is, we need to avoid imposing on the biblical text a meaning that the biblical author never intended. We need to avoid imposing on the biblical, whether it's this issue of Revelation or any issue. You know, when we come to the Bible, we come to the Bible not as a clean slate. We come with our perspectives. We come with our political positions. We come with uh, something that somebody told us at work or something we heard on the radio or something we read on Facebook, right? And so we come to the Bible and we try to sometimes, we don't realize we're doing it, but we impose on the text our conclusions, our predetermined conclusions, and then we go running around the Bible looking for a Bible verse to confirm that conclusion. And friends, that's a terrible way. To, that's not the correct way to handle the word of truth. That's a great way to become Joseph Smith and start the Mormons, right? Uh, or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever else. <clears throat> um. <clears throat> You know, guys like Hal Lindsey, right? Here's Hal Lindsey. You know, he looked at 1948 and the rebirth of the nation of Israel, and he took the headlines from the newspapers, and he read the headlines of the newspapers into God's Word, and he said, well, this maybe must be what God's Word means. See what he did? He started out here with his predetermined conclusions, and he read into the pages of the text conclusions that the biblical author I mean, if you had just read verses 1 through 3, Hal, you would have never come up with what you came up with, right? <clears throat> Friends, we do the same thing. We start with our experience. We start with predetermined conclusions, stuff that we heard at work, stuff that we heard around town, and uh, we go in search of Bible verses to support it. Not only is that erroneous and dangerous, friends, but it negates the Bible as the truth source for our lives. It says, I'm the starting point of truth. And I'm going to go impose my predetermined conclusions on what God's word has to say. Friends, that is erroneous and dangerous. <clears throat> Friends, a Bible that can say anything is a Bible that has no meaning. So this morning, I want for you to reaffirm your commitment to take the Bible at its word and to make it your primary truth source for life. Start with God's Word and work our way out to your life and mine. Second difference that this makes, and I'll be done right here, is not to be fearful. Not to be fearful. Friends, as I stated earlier, very little of what's in the book is yet to be fulfilled, is left to be fulfilled. So let's stop looking into the sky. Let's stop counting the blood moons. Let's stop worrying about uh, you know, the rise of the Antichrist and who that might be. And let's live our life, serve the Lord, raise our family, and fulfill the Great Commission. That is our purpose. That is why we're here still on the earth, is to accomplish the Lord's will 
not to identify when Jesus is going to return. And he's going to return. But even he doesn't know, the Bible says, when that's going to happen. Only God the Father does. Well, I hope this has been a blessing to you today. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to re-examine some of maybe what we've been taught, some of what we've heard. Thank you for a chance to feel a little peace this morning. That, Lord, uh, the judgments of Revelation are not targeted at me. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for that peace. I thank you for that reassurance. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning to remember your broken body and your shed blood, may we be reminded again that it's finished. Everything that needed to be accomplished for us to make our way to heaven, to have our sins forgiven, it's all done. Nothing more we need to add to it. We just need to accept what you've done for us. Lord, we commit the things which we've heard today to you, questions we still have. And Lord, we just ask that as we travel over these next several weeks, that your Holy Spirit would walk through us, that you would be our guide, that you would help us to see your word true and right. And so Lord, we just submit this time and ourselves to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.